Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series A Father's Farewell, a study of the book of 2 Timothy. The book of 2 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul to his spiritual son Timothy, and through him to all the sons and daughters of God. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. Okay, if we can make our way back to our seats, we are... uh going to be continuing in in our uh, study in 2 Timothy here, and uh, we are nearing the end, actually, as we're doing this. Uh, So only a couple of more weeks left. Actually, next week we'll be looking at uh, verses 6 to 8 of the final chapter, and then we'll conclude the book on the 15th. And so uh, today we're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 5, and uh, as always, the verses are going to be on the screen, and they're there in your booklet. You can kind of follow along, but I encourage you to uh, look at your Bible and uh, follow along with me. So 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, hear the word of the sovereign God. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Correct, uh, uh, be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine and said to suit their own desires. They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. A few weeks ago, I uh, had been gone for the weekend, and I came home, and I had received an email from my uh, roommate at the Naval Academy, and it was actually a picture of uh, our commissioning day at the Naval Academy back in 1983, and it was the Marines standing up and taking their commission. Unfortunately, I was just out of the edge of the frame, but two of my friends were prominent in the picture. And one of them didn't even remember that it had been his photo at one point. It had been hanging in the Pentagon for a while, and they were getting ready to throw it away. I don't know what that says about our class. But they were getting ready to throw the photo away, and somebody grabbed it. And it kind of led to a discussion, and we started talking about how young we all looked in the photo, uh, what a great day it was, how many memories we had, but also how little we understood really what was lying ahead for most of us during that time. And the same thing goes on every time there's actually a commissioning here at the Naval Academy or those other schools that train officers. Uh, Right, son? (laughs) So whenever they've got that, you know, at Navy or West Point or Air Force or um, at an OCS ceremony or whatever, people are commissioning and they oftentimes don't know what lies ahead. There were young men that commissioned and had no idea that during their time of service, the Civil War was going to break out. World War I, World War II, Korea or Vietnam or the War on Terror. 
You never know when you take the commission what times lie ahead. But the fact is the commission's not based on what lies ahead. The commission's based on what your call is. And you are to serve whether in good times or in bad times. Now I bring this up because today Paul is reminding Timothy of his commission. It's his final charge. The whole letter is really kind of been leading to this point where Paul is bringing everything home to bear and speaking to Timothy and saying, this was your commission from Jesus Christ. This is what your call is. This is how you are to walk. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. Now notice, this is quite an awesome charge that Paul does. I mean, I remember the day standing up and taking my oath of office, and I remember getting commissioned, but notice how Paul does this. Now, it begins, I, I should point out, the, the NIV has a bunch of words and then says, I give you this charge. In Greek, actually, I give you this charge is one word, and it's the very first word in the sentence. It's, I give you this charge, and then he explains what he's going to do. And so he's, he's pointing out, he's saying, Timothy, so sit up and pay attention. I've been talking to you about what the Word of God is, how it's God's inspired Word, how it's useful for all of these things. But now, Timothy, I am giving you a charge. And it's a, it's a strong word for giving a solemn uh, charge or demand. And it's actually the point at which the whole letter's been driving. From way back at the beginning of the letter, this is where Paul has been going to say, Timothy, I want to remind you of what your commission was. I'm going to be gone soon. We're going to see that next week and the following week. Paul's saying, I already know what's going to happen. I'm going to be convicted and I'm going to be put to death by Caesar. I know that's coming, so I want to remind you of your charge. And everything has been driving to this point. And we have to remember, as we've been kind of you know, calling this a, a father's final farewell, this is Paul, the old man who has loved Timothy as his son, has served with him. He's been his spiritual son for all of these years. And so it's not only the, the point to which the letter's been driving. Paul is basically saying, look, ever since I've known you, this is what it's been about. This is what it's been driving to. So it's a pretty awesome moment when he says, I give you this charge. But as if that's not enough, Paul intensifies it. He ups the ante. Notice what he says is, I'm giving you this charge in the presence of God. This isn't just about me telling you something. Timothy, the charge that I'm giving to you is done before God because you're going to answer to God. And secondly, he says, I want you to know it's in the presence of Jesus Christ. You are commissioned to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it's actually in Jesus' presence. And if that's not enough, he says, I want to remind you, when I say Jesus, I remind you, he's the one who's going to judge the living and the dead. Whether you are alive when he returns, Timothy, or you have been martyred for your faith, which church tradition tells us was the case, remember this, Every human being will stand before Jesus Christ. He will be the judge of all, the judge of the living and the dead. 
We sometimes, when we come to the communion table, you know, we recite the Apostles' Creed together. This phrase is actually taken up in the Apostles' Creed, you know, that Jesus Christ is the judge of the, the quick and the dead, the old version says, or the living and the dead. This is who he is. And then he says, notice, and it's also in view of Jesus' appearing and his kingdom. He is going to come back, Timothy. And when he comes back, his kingdom is going to continue. Caesar, who is judging me right now, he's going to go away. Caesar's kingdom, Rome, that seems like it rules and reigns over all things, it's going to go away. But Jesus' kingdom is going to endure forever. Remember when we talked last year out of Daniel? You know, this is, the, this is the rock that grows and fills the earth. This is the kingdom that endures. Babylon has fallen. Persia has fallen. Greece has fallen. You're in the time of the fourth kingdom. It's still going, but Timothy, it's going to fall. But Jesus Christ's kingdom is going to endure forever. If you were Timothy, do you think Paul might have your attention by this point? I mean, this is a solemn charge that he is giving him. And what is the charge? What is, what is it that Paul's been driving to? What is central to what his concern is as he knows he's going to be dying and passing from the scene? What is essential? Well, this is what he tells Timothy beginning uh, there in verse 2. And there's actually, Paul gives Timothy five commands or the technical term is imperatives. There, there's actually five of them here. They all revolve around preaching the word. And then he's going to talk about what the times are going to be like. And then he's going to come back and give four more to kind of do it. So there's actually nine commands he gives to Timothy in rapid succession here. But they're all about his ministry. And the first one that he gives is, Timothy, I want you to preach the word. And this particular word that he uses uh, K. Russo, it meant to make an official announcement. It was an official herald. This is when, when Caesar sent a person and said, this is an announcement that is coming from Caesar himself. And the person stood up and read that announcement. This is the word that was used. This isn't about having negotiations. It's not about sitting around and discussing back and forth what we think. Is it, a, it is a person who has been commissioned and they are standing up and they are making an official pronouncement of what the ruler is saying and what he wants done. And so this is what is being called for here for Timothy. You must, when the congregation gathers, you must preach the word of God. You must declare what God says to the congregation, Timothy. And so this reminds us, as we've seen several times in the letter, what do you do when there is deception and problems around the church? The first and most important thing is the positive teaching of the Word of God. Before you even turn to correct the error, you keep teaching what the Scripture says. Uh, you know, I've mentioned before, but, but like uh, IRS guys, when they're trying to, the best way to learn counterfeits is you become so familiar with the real thing, the counterfeit stands out. There's a thousand different counterfeits, but if you know what is the real one, the counterfeits will stand out. The same thing is true here. Timothy preached the Word of God. Teach them what the Scripture actually says. That way, when error crops in, they're going to know something's wrong. I hadn't quite figured it out yet, but something's not right about 
this. And actually, every other imperative is more or less going to flow out of this or, or surround this. This is the call to preach the Word of God. It was foremost in Paul's mind. It lies at the heart of what Christ has commissioned Timothy to do, and it lies centrally in what the church needs today. If the church is not clearly and accurately preaching the Word of God, explaining God's Word carefully, we are failing at our mission. Fail here, fail everywhere. Now, he goes on and he notes, he says, I want you to preach the Word, but you have to secondly be prepared in season and out of season. The word that the NIV is used for prepared literally meant to stand and be ready besides something. He's saying, you got to be ready, you got to be at your post, so to speak, but Timothy, you're at your post whether it is a good time or a bad time. The old King James, you know, was in season and out of season. It's kind of a play on words that he's doing there. Now, it could be that what that means in season and out of season is whether you feel like it or not, Timothy, whether, whether you're having a good day or a bad day, you keep at the task of preaching the word. I can tell you as somebody who's had to do this week after week after week for 28 years, there are good weeks and there are bad weeks. And there are good mornings. There have been many mornings where, quite honestly, the alarm goes off, and I'm like, the last thing I want to have to do today is go to a worship gathering, stand up and preach the Word of God. I'm worn out. I had a bad week. I've been disobedient. But whatever it is, that's a fact, and it's true. But I don't think that's what Paul's really talking about. Because as we're going to see in just a moment, uh, what he's going to be telling Timothy is, there may be good times, but there probably are going to be bad times relative to what people want. In season and out of season is whether people seem to be receptive or are not receptive. Whether they are applauding what you are saying or they are trying to shout you down. Timothy, you have the same task. Sometimes may be more opportune than others, but you must never alter the message. You must never alter your method to suit the times. No matter what the time, preach the Word. It's a simple task. Preach the Word of God. He then moves on to a third thing, and he starts describing what that's going to include. The first thing is the NIV translates it as correct, uh, to correct people. It's actually the same word if you remember when we looked last week at 2 Timothy 3.16, where all Scripture is uh, God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking. That word rebuking is the same word that they've translated as correct here. It's just the same word. And again, last week I described this word as it, it means to bring something to light, to expose it. And particularly, I think it's exposing the false ideas. So, Timothy, you not only have to teach what the Word of God says, but when other men are standing up and they're giving false ideas out, you are going to have to call those things out. You're going to have to point out, this is not true. That's a false idea. That's a false understanding of what God says. He then moves on and says you have to, as the NIV translates it, rebuke. 
Uh, this particular word, you could say rebuke or reprove or warn. Uh, it's very similar, obviously, to the idea of correct. But given how Paul's done in the letter, there's not only correcting wrong ideas, there's correcting wrong behavior. And this word was oftentimes used for that. It's probably more of a focus on action rather than ideas. But in any event, what he is saying here is, look, Timothy, you've got to preach all of the word of God. Telling them what the Word says, correcting errors in thought, and pointing out when they are straying in their actions, their character, when they're walking in vice rather than in virtue, you're going to have to bring all of that out by the Word of God. And then the last thing is the word the NIV has, encourage. Uh, Many translations have the idea of exhort or urge which is probably a little bit better, it's moving back a little bit more to a positive teaching of the word, but it's really urging people in proper thought and action. So Timothy, you preach the word, you you correct and rebuke and, and tell people, warn them when they're getting off the path, and then you are urging them to get on the right path, stay on the right path. All of this is part of preaching the word of God. And if this sounds like a lot of stuff for Timothy, it is. And notice how Paul concludes. He says, I want you to do this with great patience and careful instruction. So notice he's describing both Timothy's attitude and his method. I know it may get exhausting, Timothy. I know you may feel like you've corrected this error before. You can't get upset. You can't get angry at the flock. The shepherd's not supposed to just start hitting them over the head. You gotta be loving. You gotta be patient. You've gotta be kind as you try to continually do this. Don't get exasperated. Just continue to teach, to correct, to rebuke, to exhort, to let the word of God have its effect. And then it's literally, what the NIV's got as uh, careful instruction is literally with every kind of teaching or all kinds of instruction, which again, if you think about what he said, you're positively teaching the word, you're negatively correcting error. You are dealing with things that are uh, both thought and also that are more action-oriented. And we're going to see as well, it includes both public proclamation of the word, but then also small group meetings, one-on-one conversation, and you got to cover every part of the Word of God. This is so central to the life and health of the church, you can't be slipshod here. You must preach through all of the Word of God and use every means at your disposal to sow the Word of God in. I'll take a, a step back for just a second to point out, this is precisely one of the reasons why we're trying to do all the things we try to do, okay? why we have the booklets, why we have discussion guides, why we have connect groups during the week, why we sometimes gather other ways, even the ladies being gone this weekend, why we've worked on a catechism. All these different things are different ways so that with every kind of instruction, we can bring the Word of God to bear on our lives as a community. It's really important, and it has to be given the the priority in everything that we do. Now, all of this, I want you to notice, requires teaching the whole Word of God, not just the parts that we like, not just the parts that are easy or positive or popular. But the Apostle Paul had done the same thing. 
the last time Paul was with the elders in Ephesus, which is where Timothy's at. So he's writing to Timothy, and he's saying, in Acts 20, remember, I had warned that errors were going to arise in Ephesus. Well, they have, and so I'm telling you what you need to do. But I had already told the Ephesian elders. In Acts chapter 20, it's got this uh, address by Paul to the elders. And in verse 20 and verse 27, he says these things. Notice, I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. And a few verses later he says, For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Notice what Paul is telling them there. He's, he's saying, I taught the whole will of God to you all. Not just what you wanted to hear. Not just the parts that were easy or the parts that I even felt more comfortable with. I had to labor to teach you the whole will of God all that the scripture reveals regarding who God is, who we are, what sin is, what righteousness is, how we are to think, what we are to believe, and how we are to act. And notice Paul says there, and I did this with all kinds of instruction. The same thing he's telling I did it publicly. We know that Paul did large gatherings where he was standing up and proclaiming the word. We also know Paul said, I went from house to house. I had one-on-one -on -one conversations. Whatever it took to get the word of God sown into your life, you elders in Ephesus have seen that I did this. Timothy was there when Paul was saying these things, and what he's doing now is he's saying, I'm reminding you, what I told them, what you watched me do, I want you to do the same thing. Follow the pattern that I have laid down, that's what's going to protect the church, that is what will keep the church healthy. So that's the first thing here in the charge is, here's your commission, it's all centered around the Word of God. Timothy, you've got to get the Word of God into the congregation. But here, unlike on the day, you know, now, sometimes when we go, I remember when I was commissioned, and then when I went and watched my son Tim out at the uh, Air Force Academy getting commissioned, they actually spoke, because when Tim was getting commissioned, we were in the middle of the war on terror. It was already, so we didn't have to guess what was happening. It was going on, and they were speaking about that. Well, Paul does the same thing here. He's telling Timothy, you already are seeing what you're going to face, and so don't be surprised by resistance. Notice in verses 3 and 4 how he brings up this resistance. Now, if you remember back all the way at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul had said, look, Timothy, here in the last days, you live in the last days from when Jesus came until he returns, it's the last days, and here's what characterizes those days. Spiritual deception and moral decay. That's what's going to be around you. And since that point in the letter, he's been basically saying, so don't be surprised. You already knew this is what was going to characterize the last days. You live in the last days, and therefore you're seeing deception and decay all around you. And he's just here telling Timothy, this will continue. Uh, just a side note, sometimes the church acts surprised when unregenerate people act like unregenerate people. But when you and I were unregenerate, unbelievers, hostile to God and the gospel, how did you act? I, I mean, 
It's not like I woke up every morning when I was an unbeliever and said, I think I'm going to worship Jesus today. I didn't. I wanted what I wanted. And so Paul's here telling Timothy, don't be surprised by this. And in fact, what he says is, people are not going to want sound, healthy doctrine. Now, the scary thing is, this is even inside the church, which has also been the case and will be the case throughout the last days. And so he says, people are not going to want what Paul uses the word here. It's sometimes translated sound, but the word was actually a medical term used for healthy. This is healthy doctrine. And it is a huge concern of the Apostle Paul as he is nearing death. The word for sound or healthy is used 12 times in the New Testament. Nine of those times are in First and Second Timothy and Titus, overwhelmingly in the letter to Timothy. Paul is very concerned that they uh, have this healthy teaching. But what he's saying is, is look, the people are not going to want the healthy teaching. They're going to prefer the junk food of false teaching. Don't be surprised. They're not going to want the healthy diet. They're going to want to eat junk. Your commission, your task is to keep laboring to get them to have the healthy food, not the junk food. And even harder, where it says uh, the NIV there has, they will not put up with sound doctrine. The word means to put up or even to regard with tolerance. They're not going to tolerate it. They don't want it. They're going to, he goes on and says they're basically going to, he uses a a metaphor of, you know, their ears tickle and they're getting somebody to to scratch their ears. We we might use the metaphor today. They're going to stick their fingers in their ears and I can't hear you, I can't hear you. That's the response. He says, Timothy, this is what you should expect. Don't be surprised by it. They're going to turn their ears away from the truth, and they're going to want something else. And he actually used a word that says they're going to heap up. The NIV says they're going to gather around them a great number of teachers. The word literally means to pile up. There's not going to be enough of them. No matter how many they got, we want to add more to the pile. I need plenty of people that are going to tell me what I want to hear. Now, thankfully, we don't live in a time like that today, do we? Right? I mean, Modern America is very much, we want to be told the truth. I mean, is this, but see, here's the thing. Sometimes we act like this is unique. It's not. It has been this way throughout the entire age. Okay? I wish with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit it was not this way, but it is. People don't want the truth. They want to gather around them a great number of teachers that are going to tell them what they want to hear. Uh, They're not going to want correcting. They're not going to want the teaching of all the Word. They're not going to want to be rebuked. They're not going to want the Word applied to their lives in both public proclamation and one-on-one conversation. They're going to do whatever they can to avoid that. And so all of this is here. This is not because Paul's just feeling kind of curmudgeonly because, well, you know, he's about to die, so he's kind of getting it all off his chest. He's reminding Timothy You took a commission from Jesus Christ, and that commission, that charge, is not dependent on the spiritual climate around you. You are to be faithful to Jesus Christ. 
you are to follow through and preach what he has told you to preach, whatever other people are saying or thinking or doing. It's not up to the response of the people. It's what you are called by Jesus Christ to do. Proclaim the whole word of God. And it's important for Timothy to understand. It's important for all of us. We're not judged by the receptivity of people, but by our faithfulness to the call. I remind you, we're never told in the scripture that Jesus says, on that day you will hear, well done, good and successful servant. What, what is it? Well done, good and faithful. I can't, here's a secret for you. I can't and you can't raise the dead. It's beyond your pay grade and beyond mine. Only God can do that. What I can do is proclaim the word. Like Ezekiel, I can prophesy to a valley of dead bones. I can continue to prophesy to a valley of dead bones. Even if the dead bones are sticking their fingers in their ears and saying, I can't hear you, I can't hear you, I can't hear you. I'm just supposed to keep prophesying to the valley of dead bones. And Jesus, on that day, when he returns and his kingdom is set up and he is judging the living and the dead, he's going to ask me, did you keep doing what I told you to do? Plain and simple. Were you doing what I told you to do? So Paul then kind of sandwiches it. He comes back and he gives uh, another set of imperatives. He gives four more commands to Timothy that kind of summarize it all up. Timothy, I've told you, you've got to preach the word. You've got to preach the whole word of God. The times may be receptive or not. It may be in season or out of season. It does not matter. So he's going to come back and summarize what this means. And so notice here, he says, but you. Paul's done this several times. I'm describing what the culture is like. I'm describing what you may even see inside the church of God, but you. It doesn't matter what's going on there, Timothy. You are the one who has taken this commission. This is what you must do. Number one, what the NIV says is keep your head. It's literally be sober. They're drunk. They're drunk on deception. They're drunk in moral decay. You can't get caught up in that, Timothy. You may be surrounded by it everywhere, but you have to keep your head. You have to be sober. You have to be vigilant to hold on to the truth in the midst of deception and moral decay. Whatever else they do, you have to hold on. Tradition tells us, actually, Timothy, in rebuking people for these very things, was martyred for doing that. It's exactly what Paul was about to be martyred for. Secondly, he says you have to endure hardship. This is one of the words for suffering we've seen so many times in this letter. You remember right from the very beginning of the letter, Paul has said, Timothy, you have to take up your part and suffer with us. Like a good soldier of Christ Jesus, Timothy, you've got to join in and take your share in the suffering. He is back to that again, and he says you've got to endure hardship. You've got to suffer misfortune. You've got to bear the hardship patiently. That's all of that is kind of the flavor of what this word is telling him to do. And it's a key theme in 2 Timothy because faithfully fulfilling the call given by Jesus Christ will require suffering in the face of spiritual deception and decay. It's just going to. We, this is why we should not get too up or down by what we read in the paper tomorrow, by what happens 
in an election come November or any of that. Good times, bad times, it's going to require difficulty. I can't control any of that. What I can control is whether I'm doing what I'm called to do. And if I do what I've been commissioned to do and the world applauses, that's great. And if I do what I've been commissioned to do and the world shouts that they hate me, that's okay. And if I do what I've been commissioned to do and the world says we're not just going to shout, we're going to lock you up like they did with Paul, that's okay too. Because this world is going to pass away. It's going to fade. Jesus Christ and his kingdom are never going to pass away. Whoever might even throw me in jail or put me to death is not going to be the judge of the living and the dead. But I do know who is going to be, so all that matters is endure so that you are found faithful. Thirdly, he says you got to do the work of an evangelist. Now, there is a thing in the New Testament, this is a very rare word, where it's the kind of what we call the office of an evangelist. We like to think today of like, you know, Billy Graham or something. It actually would be those who train the church in doing evangelism. But really, I think what's being done here is you are to make sure you're about the work of proclaiming the good news. Even if it looks like things are dark, you keep proclaiming the good news. You keep proclaiming the gospel of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Do the hard work of faithfully teaching the uh, gospel, that good deposit of sound uh, biblical teaching, that good deposit of the gospel that I reminded you has been handed over to you, that you are to guard with the help of the Holy Spirit. Keep it that Keep proclaiming that whether it seems like it is working or not, keep doing it. If you want to think in terms of an Old Testament story, it's almost like when, remember when Joshua had the people go down to Jericho, they went around, you know, all those days they marched around Jericho and after a day of marching, what happened? Nothing. What happened after a second day of marching? Three, four, five, six. On the seventh day, what did they have to do? Seven times. So what happened after the first time? Second time. Third time. What if they just said this isn't working? See, Paul, and if I wouldn't use that metaphor, Paul's saying, you just keep marching. Just keep, doesn't matter whether it seems, whether it's in season or out of season, just keep marching, just keep proclaiming the gospel, just keep, because our, remember, this is flowing out of the inspired word of God, that every jot, every tittle is God's true word. Where is the power? It's in the word. It's not in me. It's not in my ideas. It's not in what I can come up with. The, because we have to remember what we're dealing with is people who are dead, they are dead men and women walking. I don't have a solution for that. But the Word of God does. And I know that because I was a dead man walking. And then the Word of God spoke to me and I came alive. And the same Word that could do that for me can do that for the people I am ministering to. And so he sums it all up then and says, look, discharge all the duties of your ministry. I want you to completely fulfill Whatever you've been given, Timothy, whatever is necessary to do what you are called to do. Because your commission from Jesus Christ includes many tasks. I, the other night, uh, since Linda was gone and suddenly my plans got changed on Friday night, and so I watched Saving Private Ryan, because not my wife's favorite movie. And 
If you remember in Saving Private Ryan, some of the guys are complaining. What, why are we doing this? How is this our job to go off and find this guy? And Tom Hanks says, because our job is winning the war. That's our job. And so the guy above me told me, go find this Private Ryan and get him out. That's my job. Okay? In essence, Paul is saying the same thing here to Timothy. Discharge, fulfill, whatever duties are required. It's, it's kind of, you know, when we take the oath in the military, it's, and other duties as assigned. What's required to get mission accomplishment? Don't say, I didn't think I signed up for that. What you signed up for was to obey Jesus. That's what you signed up for. And if that doesn't seem to be working out real well at the moment, it doesn't, as long as I'm hearing from him and I'm obeying, I do whatever it is. I positively preach the word. I correct false ideas. I rebuke evil actions. I minister in public and in private. I protect the flock. I reach out to the lost. Whatever is called for, that's what I'm called to do. Because I want to be able to say on that final day, when you spoke, I obeyed. Okay? Falteringly, failingly, but I, but I was at least pointed in the right direction when I drew my last. <laughs> I was pointed in the right direction. So Timothy is to fulfill all of this. Now, how does this apply to us? And I want us to think through, because I'm aware, if I were actually preaching this to a group of young guys in seminary, this point in the message would be a little bit different. How, how does this apply to all of us? Because not everybody is an elder in the church and called to preach and proclaim the word, but it speaks to every one of us. And there's an essential question here. Do I see the sufficiency of God's word? Last week, we saw that God's written word is inspired or it is God-breathed, that the source is God himself. This week, what we're really ultimately talking about is that God's written word is sufficient. It can accomplish what is needed. It's not up to me to figure out some other way. See, times may change. I mean, we've got our iPhones and, you know, the World Wide Web and all this kind of stuff. Times may have seemed to change, but the Word of God is sufficient in every age and every situation. Because in essence, there's only two times. In season and out of season. Good times, bad times. And if you're in a good time, what's sufficient? The Word of God. And if you're in a bad time, what's sufficient? The Word of God. Which the good news is that makes it easier for us. I don't, I don't have to get a big flow chart. The flow chart is simple. It comes down and says, is it a good time? Preach the Word. Is it a bad time? Preach the Word. In all situations, preach the Word. Because the Word is sufficient. It is sufficient and it is powerful. And I want to remind you, this is not just true for, for the, the men we have who are commissioned to stand here and preach the word. It was true for me as a young father. What was going to be powerful to work and shape and form my children? The word of God. I, I don't understand all the crazy stuff going on in the culture. I don't, I don't need to, you know, know the latest music they're listening to, which is not nearly as good as the music I grew up listening to anyway, right? I, it's not about all of that. 
what is going to be able to form and fashion my children? It's the Word of God. Now again, I, you know what I commend because Simeon and all the folks that he's got around, the young men and women that he's got around him, they're doing all kinds of things. I, I talk to young people who are here. They have a blast when they gather together on Tuesday night. But what is central to y'all's gathering, Simeon? The Word of God. That's what's central. It's the Word of God. Because what's going to form and fashion, and I'm so excited by watching young people who are being formed and fashioned by the Word of God. Because it has the power The Word of God is also sufficient and powerful as the church builds its worship and life around the Word. There gets to be all kinds of arguing that goes on regarding the worship of the church and all kinds of things. You know what the central questions are? Are we building it around the Word of God? Does it look like Acts 2.42, which is what we started uh, the meeting with today? See, there are all kinds of voices that say today, and I'm talking about even inside the church, even inside the evangelical church. They'll say the church has to update our methods. We got to get with the times. And that preaching the word no longer fits. We live in a visual culture. You can't stand up and do this. See, you know what all of that is saying is? What God needs is me. Thankfully, he's got me. I've come up with ideas. I know how to apparently raise the dead. No, you don't. And your methods aren't going to work. God's not only given us the message, he's given us the method. And the method is the word of God. It is simple. I get it At the center of our worship, This is what y'all do every Sunday. You come together and you listen to words that were written thousands of years ago. You sing them. You pray them. You read them. We talk about them. And then we come down to what we call a meal that consists of bread and a cup. What are y'all thinking? I mean, that's not very up with the times. If this is going to work, who has to show up? And that would be the point. It's not up to me. It's not up to us to have this cooling. It is up to God, and he has promised, preach the word. Lay out the table. I will be there. I will do my work. You don't have to figure everything else out. Just do what you say. So this means the church does not need CEOs who can run the church like a business because here's a secret for you. The church is not a business. We're not. We're not about making money. We're not about the bottom line. We are about proclaiming the gospel. We are about shepherding the flock. We are about doing what God has given us to do, and it's not a business. That's not a negative statement about business. I've said for years, I'm trying to be good at being a shepherd in the church. You could give me Apple computers, and I could run it into the ground in like six months. It'd go from being the most profitable corporation ever to being bankrupt. I don't have the skills to run a business. It's not who I am, but here's the good news. I don't have to, because that's not what we're doing. We need men who will study proclaim and help people apply the Word of God. The church does not need people who are going to run the church like a military unit. I actually had somebody tell me that one time. I thought when I came here with you being a Naval Academy grad and a Marine, 
I, I was going to get somebody different. And I said, if you'd have been in my platoon, you would have. And you probably wouldn't have liked me very much. But I'm not running a military unit. This is a church. Right, yeah, hallelujah. Amen to that. We're, we're called to be the church, the family of God. We keep speaking the word of God, pointing people to Jesus. So I want to encourage us as a church, whatever we face, see, I, what's going to happen next year, Brett? I have no idea. There'll be in season and out of season. There'll be good times and there'll be bad times. If we will center our life on the word of God, our worship on the word of God, God. If our fellowship with one another will continue to encourage each other to apply the Word of God to our own lives. If we will challenge each other and encourage each other and help each other in this, this church will be healthy. We will do just fine whatever the times are. And if we do not, we will cease to survive. And we should cease to survive. It has to be around the Word of God. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to come to the Lord's table, and I want to instruct us a little bit as we think through, because one of the things that's important, sometimes the church starts changing things that shouldn't be changed because we don't even understand what we're doing. When we gather each week, the reason we open the Word of God, the Lord's Word, is what did Jesus tell us? Man does not live by bread alone, but by that comes from the mouth of God. We open the Word of God. We read this crusty old book as the world looks at it, and we hear the voice of our Father. And it feeds our soul. I don't know how He does it. I don't understand that, but I know He does. The same thing is true each week we come to the Lord's table, and with Simple elements that I can assure you we bought at Safeway. They're not special. God meets us at the table. And he feeds our soul. Just as surely as he does in the word of God. And it's not even, and this can be an encouragement to you. There may be weeks where you're like, I was kind of out of it this morning and I didn't quite understand, you know, I wasn't into the singing, I didn't really feel it, I didn't feel it so much when we were praying, I didn't feel it when Brett was up there talking, I didn't feel it when we came to the table, it doesn't matter. See, if I go home this afternoon and I make myself some food and I eat it and I don't feel it was the best meal ever, what's it still going to do? It's still going to nourish my body. As long as I'm eating nourishing food, it nourishes me whether I feel it or not. Whether it's the most memorable meal or ever or not, it does its work. And so when we come to the Lord's table, there's going to be weeks where you may say, man, that was like goosebump city. I mean, I really felt the Lord working. And you know, that's great. And then there are weeks where you may not. Just like there's meals where you do and meals where you don't. But here's what I promise you. God has vowed that if you look to him in faith as we come to this table, your soul will be fed. He will strengthen you. He will encourage you. He will minister to you because he has promised to meet us here and to do this. So I'm going to encourage us to come to the table 
and be fed by the Lord himself. Brothers and sisters, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Come, taste, and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is everyone who finds refuge in him. If you are here today and you have found refuge in Jesus Christ, you understand that the only refuge, the the only rock of ages that is a cleft for you in the midst of your sin, the only one who can plead for you on judgment day is Jesus Christ. If you believe that, you are welcome to this table. You don't have to be a member of our congregation because this is the Lord's table, not ours. If you're not a believer and you, are, you do not understand that, if you are counting on something other than Christ Jesus for your salvation, please do two things. Number one, let the meal pass because it is a proclamation that, that you believe that he is your only way. Number two, please grab me and talk to me after the meeting because I would like to talk to you about why you should embrace Christ uh, as King and Lord. So with that, what I receive from the Lord I pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. And the same way, after supper, he took the cup He said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Brothers and sisters, go ahead and prepare to take the bread Is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Lord Jesus, you took our flesh to work salvation. In a body you lived, you died, you were buried, and you were raised. In that same body you ascended and are seated at the right hand of the Father, and in that same body you will return to judge the living and the dead. In taking this bread, Lord, we profess that you are the only source of salvation. And we look to you alone to save us from sin and to bring us safely through the judgment and into the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? Lord Jesus, your blood was spilled to pay for our sins, quenching the wrath and payment that we were due. Your blood has cleansed and purified us from all sin, freeing us from sin's debt 
and dominion. And your blood has sealed the new covenant, opening the way for us for all the blessings of God. Confessing all of this, we give you thanks for this cup of the new covenant, knowing that by the Spirit it becomes a participation with your powerful, precious blood. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. Let's stand together. And I I remind you in continuing to encourage us to think through as we worship. Every week we close with a prayer to the Spirit of God. And I want to urge you, you may not know the words I'm going to pray, but I urge you, you will never be too full of the Holy Spirit. You, You will never just need yesterday's filling. So cry out with me for God's powerful Spirit to come fresh upon you and work in you. Holy Spirit, you are the one who inspired the Word and who feeds us through that written Word. You are the one who meets us at this table so that the bread and the cup are a participation in the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for this ministry as we gather each week. And we cry out for you to continually fill us and to keep us. Lord, we pray, Holy Spirit of God, that you will speak to us throughout this week. Spirit of God, speak to us as we open the Word each day. Spirit of God, speak to us as we commune with the Father and Son along with you each day in prayer. Spirit of God, speak to us as we fellowship with one another. We ask that you would speak so that we might know and embrace the truth, so that we might love and serve our God so that we might faithfully discharge our callings in our families, in our work, and in this community. Holy Spirit, we cry out for you to do this, that we might be the faithful bride of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord will never be in vain. Go forth blessed and be a blessing. I hope to see everyone tomorrow night as we gather for prayer. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.